Imagine a world where you would be having regular conversations with your ideal clients and referral partners. At Spotlight Podcasting, we help consultants build strategic relationships using interview podcasting. Find out more by visiting spotlightpodcasting.com. So welcome back to Leaders of Consulting, the show that brings you interviews with experts in the trenches at the forefront of consulting, sharing their own perspectives, tips and resources they picked up along the way for your benefit. On this episode, we're joined by Carl Sakis, who is commonly referred to as the Agency Whisperer, also known as the Dr. Phil of Agency Owners and Managers. I love it. Um, and he's basically a consultant for agency owners, helping them grow more profitably so they can work less and earn more. Uh, he's advised hundreds of agencies on just about every continent. Um, he's also the author of Made to Lead and has written more than 400 articles on agency management. So he definitely knows a thing or two. It's great to have you on the show, Carl. Jonathan, glad to be here. Absolutely. So, Carl, I know you could probably pick from a thousand or a million tips, tools, or strategies, but what do you think is one that you'd like to dig into with us that you think other people in consultancy should really consider? This is one that I've learned the hard way. You know, I've been consulting really going back to when I was a web designer in high school in the late 1990s. Uh, and you know, one of the most difficult conversations you can have with a client is when they want you to do something and you don't want to do that thing, or they want you to cut your price, or or otherwise you're in a bit of a difficult situation. They want one thing, you want another. And of course, you don't want to destroy the relationship by saying, no, no, we would never do that, but uh, but you also don't want to don't want to get fired because the client is like, well, take, you know, take it or leave it, we're, we're gone. So if only there were some way to navigate those difficult client conversations, and there is, it's a simply a powerful framework that I've developed that I call reason, options, choose. Here's how that works. You start by citing a reason for why you can't do the thing they want. Then you give them two or three handpicked options that you have identified, and then you let them choose. So if you like, I can share an example of how you might apply that. Uh, so, uh, at one point, I was director of client services for a digital agency. We had a longtime client that you know, paid a, a sizable budget, uh, but the client was a bit of a cheapskate. And uh, at one point, she asked us for a proposal for building a, a particular thing for a new initiative they were working on. I got back to her with the number and gave her the budget for building it out according to the scope she wanted. She didn't like that. She was like, I'll pay you. And she picked a number that was about two thirds of what I had quoted her. What to do, of course. Uh, so I said, let me get back to you. Let me regroup with the team to see what we could do. And I'll follow up and I'll get back to you next week. Did in that meeting, I said, you know, I, we'd love to do this for you. However, if we were to do that full scope, this is the price, right? I cited a reason for it. However, if you need to fit it into the smaller budget, I spoke with our team, we can build this smaller scope for that two thirds of the, the budget number. And then I let her choose. Now, there were technically, out of that, there was also a third choice, unstated, which is, 
She doesn't want either of those. Great. She pays nothing and we do not kind of thing. Um, now, thinking if you were in her shoes, question for you, Jonathan, which one would you go with? Would you go with the big, big price, big scope, smaller price, smaller scope or the do nothing? Um, I guess it depends on on the context. Sure. And I, I realize that's, you know, that, that's hypothetical. Um, usually people guess that she went with the highest price, full, full scope, full price, which is what she went with. But here's the thing. Any of those three options would have been good. Pay full price to get a full scope. Great. That was profitable. Pay the smaller price for the smaller scope. Also profitable based on the way we worked out the scope. And if she had gone with, well, do nothing, pay nothing, do nothing, that still would have been indirectly profitable because we could use that time to do work for a client that valued what we were we were doing. So reason, options, choose. You can also use this in other settings. Say if a client wants you to get something done faster than is possible, right? It's like, hey, I'd love to get that done. Um, we've already scheduled things out for the week. So, uh, you know, but we, we have a couple options. Uh, you could wait until next week and we could get it done then. Or, you know, if you need it done sooner and only offer this option if it's feasible, said, you know, we could bring in some of our freelance team and they could work on it. There would be an upcharge, though, because of the rush turnaround. Uh, so then it's, you know, choose. Do you want to wait till next week or pay a rush turnaround this week? Key is you're only offering options that you're comfortable fulfilling. And then you're not forcing the client to choose. They are the ones choosing. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like that kind of framework because it, it also prevents you from falling to that trap of, you know, just being the the people pleaser. And you're like, okay, client is king. Uh, we're going to do whatever they say. But then internally, you might have resentment. You're like, well, you know, you went to so much effort. They don't really recognize that for one thing. And I think just also walking the client rather than just say, nah, we can't do that. Um, you're actually providing the reasoning and you're kind of walking them through you know, the logic behind it as well. Yes. And then letting them make the trade-offs. Um, you know, it's okay to deliver work, for instance, that is, I would call it strategically free or strategically discounted. You might say to a client, we had some extra capacity. We we're able to get that done without the rush charge that we would normally charge. The key thing is they need to know that they got that special strategic discount. It was for the agency's own reasons. What you don't want is something that is secretly free or secretly discounted because you're not giving the client an opportunity to decide, is it worth it or not? Yeah, I like that. I, I do wonder, though, I, uh, it's one challenge I can think of that you might find with you know providing options like that is, especially when you're trying to sort of standardize a service and you're right. trying to, you know, for efficiency's sake, uh, but also to avoid kind of finding yourself in a, in a situation where the scopes just continually are getting broader and broader. Yes. Do you, do you have any other sort of ways of navigating that side of the coin? Hmm. I mean, every client is unique. Um, I found the, the key when possible is to dig into understanding what are the client's unique personal and professional goals. I've seen that in part from organizing a group of chief mar chief marketing officers, CMOs, uh, networking group through marketing association. And, you know, it's interesting to hear what are they struggling with? 
Uh, you know, they're under pressure from their CEO typically to get things done, but they also have pressures outside of that. Maybe they're taking care of aging parents. Maybe their kids are heading off to college or, you know, going to otherwise be leaving the house or about to be empty nesters. Like they're going through a lot of transitions and they're a lot of under, under a lot of pressure. If in my work with agencies, if agencies can position themselves as the helper, they're making the CMO's life easier. Why wouldn't the CMO want their help? So if you can try to understand what the client's goals are and position yourself to help them, it's a win-win. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and switching gears a little bit, um, I, I'm kind of curious, you know, as, as, you're, as I was sort of you know, looking forward to this interview and preparing, yeah. I, I listened to couple of your other interviews and and you mentioned that you uh brought on someone which i think is kind of interesting from a consultancy's pr- perspective you know so a lot of people uh, especially you know independents they're reluctant to you know make a, a substantial hire of any sort um until you know very late on until they're really sure that you know they found the right person um but i'm curious about your your position you mentioned that you have uh, someone i believe they're called Di- diane who is diane. yeah and i was interested in how you described her because it sounds like she has a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. and she gets quite involved with your client work but i'm, I'm curious i wasn't sure from the way you des- i've heard you describe her in the past like what kind of position does she play is she business partner, ex- executive assistant, or or I'd love for you to describe that. Uh, so Diane's current title is COO, Chief Operating Officer. Mm. And, and that's evolved over time, right? Started as a project manager, then director of operations, VP, and COO. It helped that uh, I worked with different team members prior to Diane joining. You know, I, I've had a virtual assistant since about a year into starting the business. So started in 20, what's now Sake as a company started in 2013, brought in VA around 2014. Um, I've had a few people in that role over the years, but I realized I needed more help. And I actually met Diane through our volunteering with the American Marketing Association. So it was was kind of like a two year long interview that neither of us realized was an interview. Uh, So I brought her on board in 2018 after having worked with her through volunteering for two years before that. Uh, and she's been great. And, and she does a bit of everything. And some of that has evolved over, over time. Um, but that includes, for instance, Diane negotiating with potential sponsors, uh, doing initial sales screening. Uh, b- before I had another team member on board, even uh, building out presentations, uh, I, I had asked her at one point how she is so quick at building presentations, and her her estimate was that in her career she's probably built one thousand presentations over the past decade. So it's easy, right? She she's got it down. Uh, and so in in my current team, uh, it's me as the person running the company and doing the bulk of the consulting work. Uh, Diane as COO is my number two. And then uh, third team member, Kate, who started as executive assistant, just got promoted early to operations manager. And ultimately, they're helping me in different ways to better build and grow the business and support our clients. Yeah. 
That's interesting. I, I'm guessing that with you have some agency background yourself, like working with, inside an agency. Would yeah. you say would you, would you say it's fair to say that maybe your ability to bring on the right you know team members is maybe influenced by your your experience of having worked in an agency and seeing how you know uh, agencies work with contractors with you know team members that come in. Yeah, was that was that? Were you able to kind of apply some of those principles to your your consulting work? Definitely helpful because uh, you know the, I, I worked as an employee at two agencies before starting Dickinson Company. Yeah, uh, as a project manager, director of client services, director of operations, I was involved in recruiting at both both agencies and also thinking about how do we get things done more smoothly. And so, you know, in this case, both Diane and Kate are employees. I have other team members who are contractors working, you know, working part-time um, in, in different roles um, around marketing, web development, copywriting, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely thinking on the agency side about how to structure things. I, I've written an article about roles at agencies, and this really applies to any professional services business. You've got account management, which is keep the clients happy and usually sell them more work. Project management, which is get the work done smoothly and profitably. Your subject matter experts, people who are the experts in the craft of the work, could be design, development, strategy, what have you. Client strategist, whose job is to advise the client on maximizing their budget. Based on their budget, what's the best solution available? We've also got biz dev, which is really marketing, sales, and partnerships. And then finally, number six would be about support, which is operations and leadership. So any business needs those roles if they're providing professional services. Uh, what is typical is that people are doing a bit of everything. Uh, and, and for many consultants, they're doing all of those things. If you get to the point, though, that you can start outsourcing the stuff you don't want to do, that frees you up to do what you enjoy doing. Um, for instance, I have been in the process of building different information products like my agency PM 101 course, uh, a boot camp on helping agency owners and leaders work less, earn more, and a new program that I'm doing about leadership development for agency leaders, the agency leadership intensive. Having the team's support in various areas has helped me on building those and delivering them. For instance, having Kate as producer on delivering the courses uh, makes it so much easier. Originally, I would produce, I would do, I do a monthly live Q&A. I would be hosting it and also dealing with, you know, letting people into Zoom and this and that. And as that's grown, like that's more than what one person can effectively do. Uh, so, you know, and this is more with agencies than consultants, but if you are undercharging for your work, you're not going to have that margin to bring in additional help. And then, and then you end up in what I think of as the agency doldrums, uh, from the days of sailing ships where you'd be stuck without any wind for days, weeks, longer, and there's no way to get unstuck, you do need to be charging enough early on or else you're not going to have room to get additional support. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to to see all those roles breaking down that way into those six different buckets or categories. Um, I, I'm curious... It, does this also apply with with pod the pod structure of having like pods for your agency, or is that, or does that kind of modify the way that you you build your team? 
It can, you know, so the, the pod structure is basically having an agency within the agency and you might have multiple pods. And when I help clients develop pods, the pod makeup is going to be unique to each agency, depending on what services they're providing. Usually though, there is someone client facing, they could be an account manager, they could be an account strategist. There's usually someone providing strategy advice, whether it's the account manager or a separate strategist. There's someone providing some degree of project management, whether it's a more experienced project manager or a more of a project coordinator. And then your subject matter experts could be, you know, maybe a designer and two developers, or it could be two designers and one developer and maybe a copywriter. And then there also might be some services that are staffed across the pod. For instance, if the agency rarely does video production work, the video production team might be not assigned to a specific pod, but then they help out as needed. But the idea is that you have continuity for each client within the pod. They have the same set of people working with them. Uh, and then the way you can scale the agency in part is by adding new pods. There are pros and cons, but you are likely going to have most pieces of the six agency roles in a pod. Uh, you probably would handle biz dev and support separately. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'm curious, you know, for those for those six different categories, do you find that certain I don't know, I'm, I'm curious, like if you if you found that, you know, certain types of people are the right kinds of people to hire for, you know, one of those categories, let's say, you know, obviously, uh, biz dev marketing sales is a world of its own. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously, there are certain traits with, you know, for people that are good salespeople that you look for, you know, hiring pools are good places to find candidates for those individual areas. So some, some things to consider, um, you know, account management and sales tend to have a somewhat overlapping skill set. You know, it's relationship oriented. It's getting to know people. How can you make them happy uh, within the bounds of what their budget covers? Uh, project management, on the other hand, uh, really good PMs. Uh, tend to be very focused on turning chaos into order over and over and over again. Uh, and, you know, ideally, you have separate people in the PM role and the, the AM role, project management and account management, because otherwise you tend to run into problems. If someone leans toward project management, they're going to be too, you know, mean and not as focused on, you know, how do we keep the client happy? though it's on budget. And if they're more account management oriented, the client's going to be super happy, probably because you just gave them a bunch of free work that they should have paid for. Um, so the ideal is having a bit of both. So for instance, as a, when I was in a dedicated PM role, mm. if I was running into a difficult relationship related challenge with our clients, I would talk to our salesperson who was, as you might imagine, more relationship oriented. Yeah. And he often had ideas that I hadn't thought of. And then I was supporting him, helping him on some of the details. So ideally, you let people play to their strengths. PM tends to be detail-oriented. AM tends to be more relationship-oriented. Uh, one good opportunity if you're looking to bring someone in as a dedicated salesperson is someone who has been a client strategist previously or perhaps a client-facing subject matter expert. Uh, client strategy is technically an SME, but it tends to be very client-facing, and they're thinking more, well, strategically about where to spend the budget. Client strategists and account managers often make good salespeople. I've, I've had clients where they had someone who's like, 
great with clients. They understood the work. They wanted to make more money than they could as an account manager or as a strategist. So they moved to sales and clients tend to love them because they really know the work because they used to do it. Uh, and you know, they've got the, the profile relationship wise. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting how the categorization lends itself still pretty well to people moving around in an organization. There's no reason why someone could, you know, is always pigeonholed in one area for their whole careers. Indeed. And, and certainly the bigger the organization, the more flexibility there is. You know, often when I'll come in and do a culture survey at agencies, uh, an anonymous survey of employees, there's often a sense where people are maybe confident about the agency's future, but not sure where they fit in to the future. And if the agency has, say, 10 people, there are limited spots to move up. Um, on the other hand, for instance, we're speaking with a client where you know, originally they had about 15 people, they're heading toward 30. There are now all kinds of opportunities for people if they choose to pursue them. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. So obviously, you know, Carl, you're a, a, an oracle, a wealth of information uh, around the agency world. Well, I'm curious, are there any particular um, resources or, or, or bodies of work that you have influenced your way of thinking or that maybe changed the paradigm of, of yours? Or Yeah. So specifically, it's a book called The Human Brand by Chris Malone and Susan Fisk. And in particular, there's a concept in the book that they call warmth and competence. So Chris Malone had been a Fortune 500 CMO, Susan Fisk, psychology professor at Princeton. And what they found, and, and this is sort of my, my summary of it, check out the human brand to see the, you know, the, the full picture. Uh, but the idea is that when you're interacting with companies or people, you're evaluating them based on at least two criteria, two continuums, warmth and competence. And the reason I share what those are, but the reason this is important, um, about a decade ago, when I was working as head of operations and agency, my boss sent me to a week-long leadership retreat. And before the retreat, I got 360 feedback from bosses, subordinates, peers from the past almost decade prior to that of people I worked with getting their anonymous feedback. And I knew that I'd get the results at the retreat. Uh, and I have to say, the results were sobering. The feedback was basically I was good at getting things done, but not at making it fun for the people around me. I mentioned I was more detailed and process-oriented than relationship-oriented. So, I mean, in retrospect, no surprise. And, of course, I had a choice. I could just ignore that feedback and continue business as usual, or I could decide to do something with it, and I decided to do something with it. It was like, all right, I've gotten to a certain point. I'm not going to be able to move up from here unless I figure this out. And soon after that, I discovered the book, The Human Brand. So here's the thing about warmth and competence. Competency is basically, did you get the job done? You said you would do something. Did you fulfill, you know, more or less on time and accurately? And, you know, competence could be high, medium, or low. Warmth also, high, medium, low. Warmth is more about, are you making clients or customers feel special, feel valued, feel important. And companies and people can be a bit of both. For instance, uh, the postal service, you know, at least at the branch I work with, the employees are very friendly, very helpful, but often things don't go smoothly, but they're really apologetic about it. 
Uh, on the other hand, you might go to, say, a, a bank and, you know, maybe things aren't friendly. It's low warmth. But you know what? The competence is good. They got the job done. So if you're just looking for the transaction to get processed properly, that low warmth but high competence is fine. The thing is, when it comes to professional services for consultants, for agencies, ideally, you're providing an experience to your clients that is both high warmth and high competence. A lot of people focus just on the competence side. Like, did we get the job done? Did we get things to the client in time and this and that? The thing is, clients tend to focus a lot on gaps in warmth. You know, they might forget that you delivered, you know, milestone 2B in time. Uh, they might forget that, but they remember that you embarrassed them in front of their boss because you didn't do a pre-meeting to discuss what was going on before you shared things and then you inadvertently embarrass them. That would be a, a low warmth experience. So, you know, if if you are high warmth that can help build some buffer if you have some blips on competence. If you're high competence but low warmth, it tends not to go as well unless people are looking for a very transactional experience as, as a client. So I, I'm curious, what, what's your reaction to all of that, John, the idea of warmth and competence and the human brand? It's interesting because well, I'm, I think to myself, you know, the client experience, I think most people would justify their logic through the transactional experience, but actually maybe subconsciously, mm. they are much more influenced by those, by the way you make them feel, basically. Uh, that's yeah. something that's, you know, I'm, that's something I wonder about. Because at the end of the day, like you say, you know, it has, it's about things being, you know, it's about it being an enjoyable experience overall. Yeah, because people can choose to work with anyone, you know, like, like for everyone listening, like you, you have unique competitive strengths in the work that you do and your analysis and so on. Um, but if people don't like working with you, uh, they're probably not going to come back for a phase two or for a follow on or some sort of expanded, expanded arrangement. Um, and, and by the way, you know, I, I lean more naturally toward high competence and I've yeah. like worked the warm side. I mean, some other people could be the opposite, right? Super high warmth, struggling on the competent side. Usually the competent side might be struggling with like keeping up with all the details. I talked to an agency owner who said, hey, like I'll do a sales call. It goes great. Uh, but then, you know, I know I'm supposed to send a recap, a follow-up. I really don't want to do that. You know, but I realized that I'm missing some opportunities. My suggestion there was to bring his assistant on maybe not every single call, but some later stage calls uh, to get their help to deal with managing the follow-up. So whether they ghostwrite an email in the boss's inbox for the boss to send or, or something else, um, the more you can find someone to fill in for your weaknesses, that gives you room to focus on your strengths. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I also think about this, you know, when, when uh, you know, hiring people or deciding who you're going to work with, a lot of the time the the, the judgments made are more about, um, you know, is this an easy person to talk? But as are, in, are our initial conversations, are they a little bit awkward or are they very easy and free-flowing? Um, and that just being able to have easy conversations just makes it much less friction going forwards. Uh, generally an easier working experience overall. It's also a reminder about the importance of doing a 
discovery process, whether it's paid discovery or otherwise, or exploratory call mm-hmm. or something, yeah. just because something looks like a good match on paper doesn't mean that you're actually going to click. Or, you know, in, in one case, uh, I mentioned that the client where I use the reason options choose about full budget or the two thirds or what have you, she was technically the boss of my day-to-day contact. My day-to-day contact was great. Her boss, not not so much. I remember one day I, I was on the phone with my day-to-day contact and I made a joke about something and she laughed. And then she said, I will never forget this. Thanks. I needed that. We don't laugh much here. <laughs> it was so sad. Right. I could understand why they weren't laughing. She worked for the client that I mentioned in the negotiation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you find uh, that, like, are you a believer in all the multitude of personality tests out there? Do you swear by a certain, um, you know, whether it's like the, you know, the Myers-Briggs or, or something else? Or do you, or is that just something that's not really part of your your equation or your, your approach to things? Uh, so, you know, personally, I'm interested in, in Myers-Briggs, but in my consulting coaching work, I use DISC, D-I-S-C. DISC, yeah. Notably, it's a behavioral assessment. Myers-Briggs is a personality assessment. By focusing on behavior, that's really the more applicable thing in a work setting. You know, so DISC, looking at urgency, looking at their people relational orientation, uh, steadiness, and then conscientiousness, which is attention to detail and accuracy. Um, So DISC is helpful, D-I-S-C. It certainly doesn't explain everything. Um, you know, if you're hiring someone, you still need to get to know them uh, and do reference checks. Um, I, I'm surprised how often people either skip reference checks or they do a really cursory job or if they're working with a recruiter, like recruiters are helpful, but don't have the recruiter do the reference check. Why? I mean, I've gotten some of those phone calls from recruiters checking references. They are not very skeptical, which I mean, makes sense because if the end client doesn't hire the person, the recruiter doesn't get paid if they're contingency. So if it's your business, do the reference checks yourself. And the simplest question to ask would be how likely on a scale of zero to 10, how likely would you be to rehire them? Uh, my, my favorite answer almost a, or over a decade ago, uh, where I was director of client services, the agency, we had narrowed it down to two finalists. Uh, one of the references said seven. Uh, well, actually, they, they waited a little too long. And then they said seven. No, eight, eight. I think they realized that seven was a bad number uh, kind of thing. And then you asked the follow-up question, why that number? Uh, in contrast for the other finalists, one of her references said an 11. Remember, the scale was only mm. zero to 10. Right. He said 11. And you know what? Like I, the only reason we're talking right now is I don't have a job for her right now. Cause if we did, we wouldn't be talking because I would have hired her. Yeah. That's the answer you want to hear. Um, and also if you notice that as a pattern across things, when uh, Diane was doing reference checks and hiring Kate, uh, one of the references was like, I've asked her like 10 times to come back kind of thing. Um, like that, that's the kind of thing you want to hear. Uh, or well, that, that's a lot of requests to come back, but that's the kind of thing you want to hear rather than long delay, seven, no, wait, eight, eight. Absolutely. Yeah. 
that that's a very interesting uh very interesting detail that i mean it's kind of obvious the way you describe it but maybe not so obvious in you know if 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 a recruitment agency was like oh we'll take care of the you know reference checking some a lot of people might just think okay great nothing but like you say there's a lot of nuance within those uh discussions as well the tone of voice how the way they say things etc and so forth yeah that's quite important it's not to say that a recruiter will inherently do a bad job but if if their payment is contingent on the candidate moving forward it creates an unfortunate conflict of interest absolutely yeah, misaligned goals, absolutely. Well, Carl, this is this has been a great conversation, and uh, thank you so much for for providing all these you know nuggets and gems of wisdom. Absolutely. As we kind of wrap up here, um, I'd love for you to tell our audience where they can find out more about your work, uh, about the services you provide, and um, I believe you have a course or two uh, that might be worth mentioning as well for those who are interested. Yes. So if you're interested in learning more, I have hundreds of articles on agency management that are available free of charge, uh, plus a newsletter that several agency owners have described as the only email they read every time. Uh, go to sakasandcompany.com. That's S-A-K-A-S, the word A-N-D, the word company.com, sakasandcompany.com. You can sign up for the newsletter, check out the, the various articles. Um, and the course, um, and this is uh, an offer for listeners of leaders of consulting. I mentioned the agency PM 101 course. You know, a lot of consultants are what I would think of as deputized project managers in the sense that you have to do project management. That probably is not the thing you got into consulting to do. Uh, around, you know, coordinating budgets and schedules and timelines and, and this and that. Yet you have to get it done. You know, you, you've been deputized to do this. And it's a lot easier if you have some frameworks to help organize that, including reason options, choose, and, and many more. That's why I created Agency PM 101. It's an on-demand course. You can get it done in a few hours. Uh, and if you use the discount code leaders of consulting, you'll save $100 US. Great. Well, that's that's extremely generous of you. Uh, thanks, and uh, I'm sure uh, you know our, our listeners will be uh, glad to snap that one up. Sounds like a good deal to me. Um, but yeah, I just want to finish off by saying you know thanks so much, Carl, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Great to be here, and good luck to everyone. Cheers. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could give us a five-star rating. You can do that on Spotify at the top of the show listing or on Apple Podcasts if you scroll down to the reviews and ratings section. It literally takes one minute and helps others determine the quality of the show.